Author Seth Godin was once quoted as saying this, if failure is not an option, you can be sure that success isn't either. If failure is not an option, you can be sure that success isn't either. Assuming that there's some truth to that quote, there's probably no one that embodies that better than the person of Ruth in Ruth chapter 3. Because when she carries out this crazy plan that she and Naomi come up with, certainly there is a chance for success, but there is also a chance for epic failure. This is an amazing story of risk-taking and an amazing story of trusting God. But before we get to Ruth chapter 3, I think it's helpful, as we've done the last couple weeks now, to make sure that we recap the story. I understand that every week there are visitors here, and you have not been in our first two chapters of the book of Ruth. And of course, I know that there's a long time between Sundays as well. And so just to make sure that we're all caught up on the story, let me, as quickly as I can, try to summarize Ruth chapters 1 and 2. And I realize that every week as we go, we add more chapters, so I'll try to be more succinct in my summary every week. But in Ruth chapter 1, we're introduced to this man named Elimelech. Elimelech was from Bethlehem and Judah, and from the start, we're clued in that there might be something significant happening here. Bethlehem and Judah, as you may know, there's another significant person that's born in Bethlehem of Judah, and it's not just David, eventually it's Jesus. And so there's a sign to us that maybe something really significant is happening here. But we're introduced to Elimelech, and we're introduced to his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malan and Chilion. Now, at the very beginning of the book, we're told that they are fleeing Bethlehem and Judah, and they're going to Moab. We're not sure why they're the only family that's going. We don't know of any other families that go. We're left to wonder, why are they leaving? But they go to Moab, and the Moabites were enemies of the Israelites. So from the start, we're clued in, this is a drastic move for Ruth to, or excuse me, for Elimelech to leave with Naomi and his two sons, uh, Malan and Chilion. This is a drastic move. And within the first five verses, it's obvious that things go from bad to worse. Things go from bad to worse because Elimelech dies. His two sons, Malan and Chilion, married two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, and then the two sons die. And so by the end of verse 5, poor Naomi has no husband, she has no sons, and she has no offspring. And that sets up the major problem of this story. The major problem of this story is that Naomi has no male relatives. And in this culture, the culture that Naomi lived in, that was a certain recipe for poverty and loneliness. So the fact that Naomi has no sons, she has no husband, she has no offspring, this is a major, major problem. Nothing good is happening for Naomi. In verse 6, she starts to head back to Bethlehem because the famine has been lifted, and she's taking with her Ruth and Orpah. And somewhere along the way, she realizes that her problem will soon become Ruth and Orpah's problem. The fact that they too are widows without any offsprings means that her plight will be their plight. And so she encourages them to go back. Eventually Orpah goes back, but Ruth, in this amazing display of self-sacrificial love, says, no, where you go, where you go, Naomi, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And most significantly for this story, she says, your God will be my God. The word that she uses there is the Hebrew word for the one true God, Yahweh. Your God will be my God. Well, in verses 18 to 21, we're reminded that at this point, Naomi is a bitter woman. In fact, she insists that people call her bitter. And yet we have Ruth faithfully serving Naomi. And so at the end of chapter 1, we're left to wonder, what is going to happen to these women? Will Naomi always be bitter, and will Ruth come to regret this decision? So in chapter 2, we're introduced to this new character, Boaz. And interestingly enough, in verse 1, we're told that he is a relative of Elimelech, which piques our interest. Why in the world are they mentioning this? But the author quickly moves on and returns to the story of Ruth and Naomi. We've mentioned Boaz, but then he says, Ruth and Naomi, as we just said, they're in a situation that's full of loneliness and poverty, and so they're starting to look for ways where they can find food. 
And so Ruth volunteers to go and glean in the fields. Gleaning was an Old Testament practice in which the poor, widows, foreigners, orphans could go behind those who harvested and pick up leftover scraps. Well, just so happens in verse 3, and this is what we made a huge deal of last week, there's nothing that just so happens here. This is the hand of God. But it just so happens that the one field she comes to is the field of Boaz, the relative of Elimelech. And from the start, we're clued in that Boaz is exceptionally kind. He's exceptionally generous. He goes out of his way to give Ruth everything she could ever need. In fact, by the time she leaves from gleaning his fields, she has a whole, we, we said an ephah of barley, right? She has a ton of barley. And we said that was probably between like 30 and 50 pounds, just an abnormal amount of barley, a half month's worth of barley in one day, just a sign to us of the generosity of Boaz. But towards the end of the chapter, we're clued into something very significant, and that's this, that Boaz is a redeemer. And we said last week that redeemer can mean a lot of different things. But a redeemer is a family member who has the responsibility to take care of family members in need. So at times this might mean that if a family member was in slavery, the redeemer would buy them back from slavery. Or if they had property issues, the redeemer would help them to redeem the property Or significantly for this story, in some cases, if there was a widow who died without any offspring, the Redeemer might have a role to play in carrying on the family line. And so as we get to the end of chapter 2, we're starting to wonder, maybe Boaz is that man. But then at the end of chapter 2, the story ends oddly, because we're told that the harvest season is over, and Ruth and Naomi are back to living alone. They're back in the same situation they started chapter 2. And since the harvest season is over, we're left to wonder how in the world, if Boaz is supposed to be the redeemer, how in the world is he going to redeem anything in this situation because Ruth and Boaz's past will not be crossing anymore. And so at the end of chapter two, we have this huge mystery. Will Boaz actually be the redeemer? Does he still have a role to play? And if he does, how in the world is he going to come back into the story? And that's where we pick up chapter three. And that's where this very odd and very risky plan that Naomi dream up comes into play. So let's look, starting in verse 1. Verse 1, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be be well with you? So as the book goes on for us, it's becoming increasingly obvious to us that not only... Does Ruth have an amazing affection for Naomi, but it goes both ways. Naomi has an obvious affection for Ruth. This is now multiple times that she has referred to Ruth as her daughter. It's no longer her daughter-in-law, it is her daughter. She is part of the family. And it's obvious that she cares deeply about Ruth. In fact, in verse 1, we're told that she wants to find rest. She wants more than anything for Ruth to find rest. Now, if you have young kids, you're probably thinking, oh, I know what she means. She just wants her to sleep in a little bit. Now, that's not what we're talking about here. In fact, the language in chapter 1 was used in the same way. And she said this to Ruth and Orpah, go back to Moab and find rest. In chapter 1, it's obvious what she meant by that is that they would find rest from financial concerns. And they would find rest from security concerns by finding a husband. So essentially what she's saying here in verse 1 is she's saying, Ruth, I need you to find a husband. I want to find you a husband. And the reason she's doing this is because she cares about Ruth. And she knows if Ruth does not find a husband, again, in this culture, that will mean poverty and loneliness for her. Now, of course, if Ruth finds a husband, it may benefit Naomi in some way also. And possibly in the back of her mind, she's thinking that if Ruth gets married, that will carry along the family line of Elimelech. 
But there's no hint here in verse 1 that Naomi is in any way motivated by self-interest. Rather, she's motivated only by the interest of Ruth. She wants Ruth to find security and to find financial peace. That's what she wants for Ruth. It's yet another reminder and yet another picture in this story of someone caring about someone with a selfless love. Verse 1, Naomi is only concerned that Ruth would find a husband because she wants her to find protection. And so she comes up with this plan. And admittedly, it is an odd and risky plan. In fact, before we go any further in this chapter, I probably just need to make a caveat here. This is by far the hardest passage in the book of Ruth to preach because there are some really, really strange things that happen here. There's some strange things that happen. There's some odd things that happen. And at times it seems like maybe there's even some inappropriate things that happen. And so as we deal with this, I think we'll just tackle it head on. And for the record, I don't think anything inappropriate does happen, but I think it is very, very strange. So here's the plan, verses two through five. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, Observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So the harvest is over, and Boaz is on the threshing threshing floor winnowing barley. Now again, because we're not growing up in an agricultural society, I'm guessing that not a lot of you are familiar with winnowing. Who knew that by reading the Bible, we would become de facto farmers, right? Every week we're learning something new. Last week it was gleaning, this week it's winnowing. And for the record, even though I grew up in Iowa, and even though I may have seen a lot of cornfields, I don't know much about harvesting grain either. I just want you to know that. So this is just based on my reading, but this is my best understanding of what winnowing is. Winnowing is the process by which the chafe, which is the worthless part of the grain, is separated from the kernel. So here's how it would work. If you were winnowing something, you would have this fork-like object, and you would take the grain, and you would throw it up in the air with the fork, and the wind would separate the chafe. The chafe was lighter, and so it would blow away, and the heavier kernel would fall to the threshing floor. That's the part that you would use. So I think you can understand why the wind conditions have to be perfect for this to work. If it's too windy, you throw the grain up in the air, and both the chafe and the kernel blow away. If it's not windy enough, you throw it up in the air, and both things just fall back in the same place. Now here's why that's important. All right? You may think, why is he telling us all these random details about winnowing? This is why this is important, because it explains why Boaz is threshing at evening time. The wind conditions would be ideal at the evening time in this part of the world. And so for him to thresh accurately, or for him to winnow accurately, he would need to do so in the evening time. And so this explains why Boaz is out in the threshing floor at nighttime. And because of the fact that he was working at night, And because of the fact that the threshing floor was likely far from town, and because of the fact that it was not uncommon for robbers to come and try to take the grain, Boaz, like many landowners, decides that he will sleep on the threshing floor. This is not uncommon for all of the factors I just mentioned. Now, you probably need to know this because it's a huge undercurrent in the story, but threshing floors did not have the best of reputations. They did not have the best of reputations. In fact, given the isolated conditions and the fact that the men were away from their families, it's probably not surprising to find out. And and given the fact that we're in the period of judges where people are doing whatever they want, it's not surprising to know that most threshing floors were oftentimes places of immorality. It would not be uncommon for prostitutes to go to the threshing floor. 
I'm not telling you that because it's just a strange detail I want to share, but it really does play a huge part in this story. And it explains why and helps us to understand how risky and how strange this plan is that Naomi and Ruth come up with. That said, somehow, Naomi is aware that Boaz is on the threshing floor. And so she encourages Ruth to wash up, to put perfume on, change her clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. Now, some think that Naomi is telling Ruth to dress up, as in dress up and try to attract Boaz. But I don't think that's what's happening here. And part of the reason I say that is because of the word that is translated cloak here in the ESV. In the NIV, it's translated put on your best clothes. I don't think that's a great translation of the original Hebrew word. The original Hebrew word would actually mean something like a generic outer garment. And so I think cloak captures much better what Naomi is trying to say to Ruth. And again, here's why that's important. Because a cloak or a generic outer garment is what you would wear in everyday life. I don't think that she is trying to tell Ruth to put on her best clothes and go and try to seduce Boaz. I don't think that's what's happening here. Instead, I think this is probably what's happening. I think what's happening is that ever since her husband died, Ruth had been wearing clothes of mourning. This was not uncommon if you read the Old Testament. When someone dies, they usually put on clothes of mourning. And so for a long period of time, Ruth was probably wearing these clothes that would signify that she was mourning the death of her husband. In fact, I think it's likely that as she was harvesting in Boaz's field, she was wearing clothes that were saying that she was in mourning for the death of her husband. So I think what Naomi is saying to Ruth here is, you need to signify, you need to put on clothes and show that your mourning period is over. I think that's what's happening here. The washing, the putting on of perfume, all of that would have been a part of returning to everyday life. We may want to read something more into that, but that's just normal everyday life. When you had little opportunities to take baths or showers, obviously, putting on perfume was just a common part of everyday life so that you weren't so stinky. I don't think we need to read anything more into this than what it is here. This is a way of signifying that Ruth's mourning period is over. And significantly, it's a way of signifying to Boaz that Ruth's mourning period is over. At any rate, the plan is that Ruth will put on her normal clothes, she'll head down to the threshing floor, she'll wait for Boaz to go to sleep, and then she'll carry out phase two of the plan, which also, by the way, is very risky. Verses six and seven. Verse six. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. I think it's implicit in verses 5 and 6, but especially in verse 6, that Ruth trusts Naomi. And that she cares deeply about her because in verse 5 we're told that she plans on doing everything that Naomi says. And in verse 6 she does exactly that. And what she does is risky. It's a risky strategy. To wait for a man to fall asleep and then go and uncover his feet and lay there at his feet certainly has a hint of immorality to it. In fact, again, some have suggested that there is something immoral going on here. And they point to the fact that the Hebrew words that are used here can mean more than one, one thing, including some things related to sexual immorality. But for reasons I'll get to here in a little bit, I don't think anything immoral happens here. But that said, this does look shady. Right? There's several things that could happen here when Boaz wakes up and almost all of them are bad for Ruth. He could wake up and he could know that Ruth has been in a period of mourning and he could think that she's trying to do something immoral and accuse Ruth of adultery, which might even lead to Ruth's death. That would not be good for Ruth. 
He could wake up and being the moral man that he is, he could assume that she is some immoral woman who's made her way down to the threshing floor. And because there's no electricity, right? There's no lights. He can't see anything. He could not know who it is and just shoo her off. This would be a disgrace for Ruth. That too would not be good for Ruth. In fact, that would make her and Naomi's situation quite, it would make it worse. Or since we don't know everything about Boaz, it's possible that Boaz could wake up, see the woman there, and he could take advantage of the situation. That too would not be good for Ruth. At the very least, it seems highly possible to us that Boaz would wake up and he would be extremely weirded out and offended, right? I mean, there's been multiple times over the course of the time that we've had kids where I've been sleeping and I've waken up and one of my kids is just staring at me. That is unnerving, right? Like, thankfully, that doesn't happen often, but I wake up and they're just staring at me. I'm like, wow, that's creepy. Now, can you imagine if you were to wake up in the middle of the night and even your best friend was laying at the foot of your bed? Would you not think that is odd, let alone some person that you harvested grain with for seven weeks? This is very strange. And so best case scenario, best case scenario, it seems like Boaz would wake up and he would be extremely weirded out and be like, who is this woman? Get out of here. I thought I knew you, but you're weird. That seems like the best case scenario. But Ruth and Naomi were willing to carry out this plan. I think here is where we need to consider the rest of the chapters in light of Ruth 3. In chapters 1 and 2, we are reminded that Ruth especially had a tremendous trust in God. In fact, if you remember last week, we're told that Ruth took refuge in God. And so the fact that Naomi and Ruth are willing to try this plan, I think, demonstrates not only did they hope for the best with Boaz, but ultimately they trusted that God would lead Boaz's heart. I don't think this is just a crazy plan. I think that ultimately they are taking a risk, believing that God will work in this situation, even though their plan seems unlikely. And so when Boaz wakes up, we're left to wonder, what will he do? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Boaz reacts just the way that probably all of us would. He wakes up, he's startled, and he says, who are you? And Ruth says, I'm Ruth. Your servant, spread your wings over your servant. Now, that's probably not the thing you would say in that situation, right? Spread your wings over your servant. Well, you need to understand that's a common Hebrew way of essentially proposing marriage. She's asking for Boaz's protection. So it seems here that she's proposing the idea of marriage to Boaz. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you this, but this is strange, right? This is strange. For a servant to propose this to her boss, for a Moabite to an Israelite, for a woman to a man, for a poor person to a rich person, in this culture, all of these things make this an extremely odd request. And on the surface, it makes little sense. It's probably fair to point out that this is not a marriage proposal in the way that we think of marriage proposals. More than anything, she's asking for Boaz's protection, but it's still really strange. And again, we're left to wonder, how is Boaz going to respond to this? What is he going to think of this crazy woman? Verse 10, we find out what he thinks. Verse 10, and he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now, fortunately for Ruth, 
And we know that it's not just fortune. We know that this is the hidden hand of God. But fortunately for Ruth, Boaz does not dismiss the request, but instead he responds with kindness and compassion again. It seems obvious to us, the outside observer, that God is directing Boaz's heart. In fact, Boaz seems honored by this request. It's likely that he was much older. In fact, some have speculated that he was probably closer to the age of Naomi than he was to the age of Ruth. And he's honored that she would seek refuge with him. And he's willing. He's willing to go with this plan because he says that Ruth is a worthy woman. The phrase worthy woman is used three times in the Old Testament. The other two times it appears in the book of Proverbs. And both times it refers to an excellent wife. Proverbs 31.10 says this way, same Hebrew phrase, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. In chapter 2, Boaz was referred to a worthy man. Chapter 3, Ruth is referred to as a worthy woman. And in fact, Boaz goes so far as to say, this isn't just his opinion. All of the townspeople feel this way about Ruth. She is a woman of great character. And so finally, it appears that there's going to be a resolution to the story. For those who love a good love story, this seems like the perfect story, right? We have this worthy man, Boaz. We have this worthy woman, Ruth. And we're thinking they're going to get married. This seems perfect. But I guess not surprisingly, we have yet another twist in the book of Ruth. In fact, this won't be the last one, but there's another twist. Verse 12. And now it is true, Boaz says, that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Being the honest man that he was, Boaz admits there's a closer redeemer. Apparently in Israelite custom, there was a hierarchy for redeemers, and we're not exactly sure what that hierarchy was or where Boaz was in the hierarchy compared to this other person, but there is a redeemer who is closer, who has the first rights to redeem. This may explain to us why Boaz has not done anything to this point. We may be wondering, why does Ruth need to be proactive? Why didn't Boaz initiate the role of being a redeemer? And a possible answer is, he did not think it was his responsibility, or he thought it was not the right thing to do since someone else had the closer role of a redeemer. This is yet another reminder to us of the integrity of Boaz. So he comes up with this plan, verses 13 and 14. Verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now again, the way this ends seems a little shady, right? He tells her in verse 13 to remain. And then in verse 14, he's like, don't let anyone know you are here. And so this seems shady. And again, there have been commentators over the years who have argued something immoral or inappropriate does happen here. And I think, listen, it's certainly wise for us to remember that none of our biblical heroes, save for one, is perfect. In fact, as you read through the Old Testament, you're reminded over and over and over again that God works in deeply flawed people, right? Noah, Moses, Abraham, Sarah, you go down the list, all of them are deeply flawed people. In fact, sometimes it's amazing that God chooses such weak people to work through. Even David, a deeply flawed person. So it's wise for us to remember, it's wise for us to remember, there's only one biblical hero who was always perfect, Jesus. Right? The rest of them are just reminders of the grace of God. And so even Ruth and Boaz, we don't want to lift them up too highly and say that they are perfect characters. That said, that said, I don't think there's anything inappropriate going on here. There's two main reasons why I say that. 
Number one, the word that he uses in verse 13 when he says remain here is a word that is clearly not meant to give any sort of sexual connotation. He could have chose lots of words that would have had that connotation, but the Hebrew word he chooses clearly is making it known he has good intentions. So the Hebrew is one reason. But the other reason is throughout this book, throughout this book, over and over again, the character of Ruth and Boaz is being emphasized. In fact, just two verses earlier in verse 11, he refers to Ruth as a worthy woman, a woman of great character. It would seem odd that he would emphasize the great character of Ruth, and then two verses later, they would be involved in something inappropriate. And so I don't think that there's anything inappropriate going on, but again, this is odd. And for most people, if they would have seen this, it has a hint of impropriety, which is why, and explains why in verse 14, he says, you can't let anyone know you are here, because everyone's going to think that this was inappropriate and this was not wise, which really raises the question, why in the world did they carry out this plan? That's the big question I had this week when I was reading Ruth chapter 3. I kept asking myself, why this plan? Surely there was something that was less weird, right? Surely there was something that was less risky. Surely there was something that wouldn't seem to be so inappropriate. Why this plan? The answer is I'm not quite sure, but I think maybe the reason why this happened is because of the fact that Ruth had been in this period of mourning and Boaz likely had considered her unavailable to marry. And perhaps because of the fact that maybe Naomi knew of this other redeemer, she knew that in order for Boaz to take action, she was going to have to do something that would get his attention. And I think it's safe to say this action got his attention. I think we can all understand how it got his attention, right? When someone wakes up at your feet in the middle of the night, that will get almost anyone's attention. And so I think the reason they do this is they just want to do something to help Boaz to see that they needed action. And as risky as it seemed, it worked. Complications notwithstanding, it seemed to work. Verse 15. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, (coughs) excuse me, you must not go back empty handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for that man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So as we come to the end of chapter 3, hope seems to be rising in the story. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi describes herself as empty-handed. And here at the end of chapter 3, Boaz tells Ruth to give Naomi grain so that she will not be empty-handed. I think this is an intentional play on words. And it's telling us, it's foreshadowing for us that Naomi is not going to continue to be empty, that her hands will soon be full. But that said, we still have several questions. Will Ruth find a husband? And if so, who will it be? Will it be Boaz or will it be this mystery other redeemer? And will that husband want to carry along Elimelech's family line? Will he fulfill the entire role of a redeemer? Well, all of those questions are left for chapter 4. Which, by the way, we will break up into two parts just to extend the drama as long as we can. Not actually, I think there's just too much to cover in one week. So, but we will actually do it in two weeks because I think there's too much to cover in just one week. And especially, wait until you get to the end. If you think you've seen twists, there's a great twist coming at the end. In fact, I, I want to talk about it now. That's how exciting it is. But we'll wait, we'll get there in two weeks, all right? For now, the question is what do we do with chapter three? What do we do with chapter three? What do we make of this? And again, one of the reasons why this is a difficult passage to preach is not just because of all the weird stuff that happens, but I really had to think, okay, what are the implications for us? I think I boil it down to one main thing. 
Here it is. At times, it's appropriate and necessary to take risk because we trust God. At times, it's appropriate and necessary to take risk because we trust God. Now, obviously, there's a lot to that statement. I want to make sure that we understand it correctly. But that said, before we dive into that, I think it's important to point out that not everything that happens in the book of Ruth is a pattern for us to follow, right? The whole middle of the night laying at someone's feet secret marriage proposal is not a pattern for you to follow. In fact, if you go break into someone's house, lay at the foot of their bed and hope that they propose marriage, you're more likely to get a restraining order than you are a marriage proposal, right? So this is not a pattern for us to follow. We have to remember that this is a narrative, not an epistle. This is just a recounting of a historical event. It's not meant to be a command that we are to follow. Now, I could give you tons of examples of things that happen in the Old Testament that are presented in a good or positive light that we are not meant to copy. So let me just give you a couple, right? So for example, when Hannah takes her son Samuel to the temple and drops him off for temple service, that does not mean that when you have a son, you should come drop him off here at New Hope Fellowship. In fact, I strongly discourage that. We don't have any more room in our house. I don't know where we would put your son, right? So I would strongly discourage that. It's not a pattern for us to follow. When Samson, by faith, knocks down an entire building on top of the Philistines, that doesn't mean you should go start working out more and do CrossFit or whatever else so that you can knock down buildings by faith. However, there are principles in both of those stories and in this story that we can relate to. So the plan from Ruth 1 is not, hey, let's go out in the middle of the night and have a secret marriage proposal. No, the plan is, and the principle at work here, is that it's appropriate and necessary to take risk at times because we trust God. Now make no mistake about it, the plan that Ruth and Naomi concocted here was a giant risk. What they did was socially abnormal. And although they hoped Boaz would respond a certain way, there were no guarantees. There were no guarantees. If things would have gone wrong, It could have easily led to further social disgrace, if not death for Ruth or even Naomi. But for the sake of Ruth's future, they took a risk. But understand this, I'm convinced of this. The reason why they took the risk is because they trusted God. Again, chapter 3 must be informed in light of chapters 1 and 2. And Ruth has this tremendous trust in God. We have to take that into account as we read what we do in chapter 3. The plan seems a little crazy, and certainly it isn't the plan that I would have carried out. But the reason why I think they did what they did is because they trusted that God would lead Boaz's heart. And they trusted, although it was strange, they trusted that somehow God would work through this. They trusted in God, and that allowed them to take a necessary and appropriate risk. And again, I would argue the same should be true for us. We cannot play it safe all of the time. And I'm referring specifically here to our Christian faith. As has been famously said before, and no one knows exactly who to attribute this quote to, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. Of course, there are ways for us to play it safe when it comes to our Christian faith. But there's ways for us to play it safe. We can talk about Christianity and we can live it out when we're gathered together, but then the rest of the week we can act like everyone else. Right? We can do everything we can to blend in with the culture around us because we don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. We don't want to appear to be different. And so we play it safe. We think, okay, I'll live out my faith here, but when I get out in the real world, I'll just act like everyone else. Or we can think, you know what, I'll never talk about Christ with my non-believing friends because I don't want to, I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to make anyone upset with me. I don't want anyone to think that I'm some know-it-all. Right? And so we never talk about Jesus. We can do that. We can play it safe. 
Or we can keep all of our time and all of our money and all of our stuff and we can use it for us rather than risking sacrificing money and time and all of those things. We can do that. We can play it safe. But here's the question. Is that really what we are made for? Is that really what we are made for? Or are we just like the ship that's staying in harbor? Let me ask you this. Where would we be if the disciples had never risked persecution and even death to spread the message of Jesus Christ? Where would we be if Martin Luther had not risked excommunication, potential jail time, and potential death to nail his 95 thesis on the door at the church at Wittenberg? Where would we be if men like William Tyndall had not risked their lives to make sure that the Bible could be translated into languages that people could read, including English? Where would we be without countless other believers throughout the ages who have risked persecution and death so that this message that we're openly proclaiming today could come to people like us? Where would we be? Where would we be? Where would I be if not for men like Mark Walter who faithfully shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with me, rejecting or or, uh, risking potential rejection, potential social ostracization by me making fun of him or mocking me? Where would I be if he had not taken that risk? Listen, the fact of the matter is that the church is built on the back of risk takers. In fact, the entire book of Acts is an account of people taking risks for the sake of Christ. Now, ultimately, they are inspired to take risks by the Holy Spirit. And I would argue that more than anything, the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit working more than it is about these risk takers. But nevertheless, those who are taking the risks, the risks are real. So let me ask you this. What risk might you need to take this week, this month, this year for the sake of Christ? What risk might you need to take? Maybe there's a coworker that you've befriended over the years and you've never talked about Jesus. You've never talked about Jesus. Although at its essence, being a good friend is giving the best message that we could possibly give, right? Perhaps you need to risk that friendship for the sake of telling them the one message that can save. Or perhaps for years at work you've acted in an unchristian way and you've set aside what it means to live as a Christian in your workplace. And I'm not even talking about talking about Christ here. I'm just talking about living out Christian morals in the workplace. And you're one person when you're here and you're another person at work. And you're worried that if you acted in a way that the Bible lays out for what a Christian should look like, you're worried that that will affect your standing at work. But perhaps you're being called to risk that standing for the sake of honoring Christ in all your actions. Or maybe as parents... You've neglected for years to point your kids to Christ. And you're afraid that if you start trying to lead them spiritually now, they will think that you're just a big fraud and that you really don't know what you're talking about. But perhaps you need to risk your pride and in humility start to lead your family well. Or perhaps for some of you in this room, for years, you felt a tug towards international missions. And you felt like maybe God is calling you to go overseas and to take the gospel to a different people group somewhere. But you're concerned Because you know that your family probably wouldn't like it. And you're not sure how you'd even provide for yourself. But perhaps you are being called to risk your family being upset. You're being called to risk the financial uncertainty to go to the nations. Listen, as a side note, I just want you to know that I am praying in the next 10 years there will be multiple people from this church who would be raised up and would go to the nations. And specifically, I am praying that there would be multiple people who would be raised up to go to unreached people groups. And not just single people just out of college, but families too. I'm praying that would happen. I hope that doesn't scare you. But I want you to know I am praying that. In fact, one of the greatest joys I thought of this week as I was thinking of this passage is that for years I prayed this in Amarillo for our students. I prayed that God would raise up people who would go to unreached people groups. 
I was just talking last week with one of our students who's about to get married, and it's almost certain that after they're married, they will head to the Arabian Peninsula, and they will be in a country where there are six Christians. Six. And this isn't like a weird island where there's 12 people in the country, right? There's six Christians out of millions of people. And I think this is an answer to prayer, and I'm praying the same thing here. I'm praying that we would be risk takers because we trust God and because we believe that he is the greatest treasure. I think if we're honest, what most of us really want is a good, safe life. The only problem with that is it's not a scriptural ideal. But this idea of being safe, that is not something that we see valued in scripture. Sometimes we need to take risk and we need to be decidedly unsafe because we trust God. And that's the key part. Listen, the reason we're willing to take risk is because we trust God. Because we trust him. Why would Ruth and Naomi carry out this strange plan? Because they trusted God. Why would we tell people about Christ? Why would we live out Christian principles in the workplace? Why would we try to lead our family spiritually, even if they may think that we're fakes and we don't know what we're doing? Why would we be willing to consider to go to the mission field? Why would we do that? Because we trust God. We believe that he is sovereign and that he is working things out. And we believe ultimately that following him will lead to the greatest joy. It's not just that we trust him. It's not just that we trust him but it's also that we see him as the greatest treasure. It's that we believe that the gospel is true, that Christ died on the cross for sinners like us. And we are so thankful for that, and we are so motivated by that, that our thankfulness spills over to all of our actions. Listen, it's not just that we trust him, it's also that we see him as the greatest treasure. It's also that we see that following Christ makes everything else worthless in comparison. In fact, in light of that, I would say the riskiest thing you can do is to play it safe and not live a life that's sold out for Christ. In fact, that's kind of the irony of all this, right? That as we talk about taking risk for the gospel, it's really not a risk at all. Because we know that the joy that comes from following Christ, we know that that will far outweigh any consequences that we may face. Because we believe that the Bible is true and that there is nothing better than following Jesus Christ. David Livingston, who was a pioneer missionary to Africa, lived a life with incredible suffering. When he was in Africa, at one point he was attacked by a lion, and it left him really hindered physically for the rest of his life. There were periods where he was away for his family for even years, and eventually when his family came, his child died, and also his wife died on the mission field. Incredible, incredible suffering in his life. But listen to what David Livingston said at the end of his life. He said this to a group of Cambridge students about leaving the benefits of England. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Then he asked this question, is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. And then he says this in his last line, I never made a sacrifice. Listen, not everyone here is called to the mission field. Some might be though. But for the rest of us, But for the rest of us, we are called to take everyday risk 
for the sake of the beauty and the glory and the treasure that is found in Jesus Christ. But again, I would ask, is it really a risk if we trust God and we believe that the gospel is the greatest treasure? And that's the thing, because we believe that God is good and that he is sovereign, and because we believe that his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection was the ultimate defeat of Satan, and we know that Satan's defeat is imminent, we have all the confidence in the world to take these supposed risks because we know that the victory is his. Now hear me, that doesn't mean things will always work out the way we want them to. You can ask the apostles, you can ask David Livingston. It doesn't always work out the way that we want them to. But it does mean that taking risk is worthwhile because he is good, he is in control, and his victory is sure. And eternity is real. Now one other thing I might add. There might be some here today who are weighing out the perceived risk of what it means to follow Christ. There might be some here today who have never actually repented of your sins and trusted Christ. And you are weighing out, is it worth it? If you've read the Bible, you know that the cost of following Jesus is high. You have to leave everything behind. And you're wondering, is the risk of following Jesus Christ, is it worth it? Is it worth it to give up everything to follow him? And if you're here today and you have never trusted in Christ, the only way I can answer that is with a resounding yes. Yes, it is worth it. It is worth it. Take the plunge. Take the risk. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and trust him. To not do so that would be the ultimate risk. Listen, I'll admit to you, when I first read Ruth 3 this week, I thought, this is really strange. And I thought, I have no idea how I'm going to preach this. But the more I dove into it, I realized this is a great reminder to us. It is appropriate and necessary at times to take risks because we trust God. So let's be risk takers. But let's be risk takers knowing full well that in the end, following Christ is not really a risk at all. In fact, to live for ourselves or to live for anything else, that's the risk. Instead, let's live for the one whose reward is sure and victory is certain. Let's live for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word in Ruth chapter 4. Sometimes we get to passages like this and we wonder, what in the world is this passage doing in Scripture? The more we dive into it, the more we realize that all of Scripture is inspired by you and that there is nothing that is in here by accident. And this passage, I think, is meant to convince us that it's appropriate and necessary to take risks because we trust you. And ultimately, I think it's helping us to see that there is no risk when it comes to following Christ. In the context of this whole book, we know that ultimately, this passage too is pointing us to the hope and the treasure that is found in Jesus Christ alone. May we live for him. May we take risk for him. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.